Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 50 for May 13th, 2007. I'm your host, Tom Olzak. You can find the information covered in our episodes at adventuresinsecurity.com on the podcast page. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear about topics you'd like me to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. In this episode, we have two featured topics. The first is a continuation of the Computer Forensics series, Preparing for Electronic Evidence Acquisition. The second deals with how to prevent swap and hibernation file data leaks. The featured material is taken from my weekly contributions to techrepublic.com, a source of valuable information for all technology professionals. But before we get to our featured topics, let's take a look at what was going on last week. Microsoft plans to release a plugin to protect users from exploits targeting an ever-growing number of Office vulnerabilities, known as MOICE, M-O-I-C-E, which stands for Microsoft Office Isolated Convergent Environment. The tool converts Office 2003 Word, Excel, or PowerPoint documents to the Office 2007 OpenXML format. This creates a document that takes advantage of 2007 security enhancements without upgrading the user to the newer release. The converted document is then opened by the appropriate application. This is an important step for Microsoft. Office applications are rapidly increasing in popularity as malware targets. According to Symantec, the huge Office user base presents an attractive attack surface for malware developers who are increasingly blocked by enhanced operating system security processes. In fact, Symantec writes that about two-thirds of the the Microsoft security bulletins concerning Office 2003 applications were released in 2006. Organizations and individual users with updated anti-malware solutions are reasonably reasonably protected from Office document attacks. However, the increase in zero-day exploits underscores the need to augment signature-based remedies. Moist will help in this effort by helping to ensure that document formats include, include only what is expected. So what's the downside? This looks like a pretty good solution. Well, the most discerning users might not think so. Because a document is converted twice, once to XML and then to native Office 2003 format, opening a document will take longer. Moist also strips out macros and VBA projects. These issues translate into this being a security tool that might not be for everyone. There is also the question of the converter. What happens if an attacker attempts to exploit a vulnerability discovered in the software that's supposed to clean bad documents? Well, this doesn't seem to be a problem. The converter runs in an isolated sandbox environment. Compromise of the converter won't add much value to an attack. Originally planned for release in May 2007, Moist availability has been delayed for, according to Microsoft, up to several weeks. Our next news item has to do with source routing and IPv6. As the U.S. military gears up to support IP version 6 by June 30, 2008, experts continue to work on potential security issues contained in the protocol's specification, not the least of which is the capability for attackers to use source routing to launch denial-of-service attacks that might be amplified up to 10 times over the same attack or same type of attack against the IP version 4 network. IPv6 packets contain something known as the Type 0 router header, or RH0. RH0 allows senders to specify up to 88 destination IP addresses. This is up from 9 in IPv4. 
An attacker can use this capability to bounce one or more packets back and forth between devices, creating a denial-of-service situation. Even though this was a known problem in IPv4, designers of the new IP specification decided to leave it in while increasing the damage that could be caused by its misuse. Denial-of-service isn't the only potential attack possible using RH0. Since IPv6 allows an attacker to specify a destination address, she could use this feature to reach places on a target network that would not normally be accessible. Granted, all networks should be designed to prevent unwanted packet delivery under any circumstances, but nobody's perfect. Another issue is caused by the various stages of compatibility with IPv6 within the wide range of network devices installed and in supply channels. Some security professionals are concerned that a combination of general IPv6 compatibility issues and the use of RH0 might allow attackers to hide traffic. So how does an organization protect itself until RH0 issues are worked out? The consensus appears to be either to purchase devices that don't support RH0 or turn it off. In any case, experts working on this problem expect to have it all worked out over the next two to three years. And our last news item has deals with a, a topic that I've covered several times in the past, and that is the problem with removable storage increasing a network's attack surface. A few months ago, I wrote about a program that could automatically run from a memory stick or thumb drive and perform unwanted tasks on the victim's computer. Known as Hacksaw, this malware collects information from the target system and transmits it to the attacker's home system. Now a new worm is circulating that potentially presents an even bigger threat. Labeled W32-SillyFD-AA at the Sophos site, this worm targets removable storage devices. Once installed on our vulnerable system, it continuously looks for mobile storage devices such as USB memory sticks and CD drives. Once a drive is located, this worm writes an autorun.inf file to the device. This is supported by a registry entry to ensure execution of the autorun file when the media is next inserted. Although no truly malicious payload appears to be included with this worm, it has the potential of creating a backdoor for future attacks. As I've written in the past, security managers must work with business managers to assess the need for removable storage. Allowing the connection of MP3 players, memory sticks, and other removable storage devices not only exposes an organization's network to potential malware propagation, it also provides an opportunity for large amounts of data to be removed for both malicious and non-malicious purposes. At the very least, use of these devices should be restricted to those employees who require them to perform day-to-day -day tasks. This should be coupled with content monitoring as well as a centrally managed enterprise anti-malware system that continuously updates endpoints. Microsoft's Guide to Preventing Information Leaks, and I have a link to that in the show notes, is a great resource for GPO management of, window of removable storage within an Active Directory environment. Well, that's it for current events. Let's get on to our featured topics, the first of which is preparing for electronic evidence acquisition. In the previous installment of the series, we collected, safeguarded, and transported physical evidence. In this uh, episode, we'll begin the process of processing the data contained in the suspect's computer. After photographing the target computer at the scene, the next step is to decide whether to perform a live or a dead analysis. 
A live analysis is performed when it's believed that information crucial to the investigation might be contained in volatile storage. The system is not powered off until this information is retrieved. In all cases, the target system is shut down and usually transported to the investigator's lab for analysis. A lab analysis isn't absolutely necessary, but the investigator has more control over the process and the integrity of the evidence when in the lab. Once the decision is made to power down the computer, care must be taken to ensure the normal power-off sequence doesn't alter any data on non-volatile storage. If accessing a Microsoft Windows system, for example, performing the normal shutdown process writes information to the hard drive. The best way to prevent a graceful shutdown, and this is one time you do want to prevent it, is to simply pull the power cord from the wall outlet. This leaves the non-volatile storage in the state it was in when the scene was secured. The computer should then be tagged and transported to the investigator's lab. Once in the lab, the investigator prepares to analyze the computer storage devices. He or she starts by gathering information about the computer and the way it's set up. This begins by booting the system and entering BIOS setup. Be sure the system does not boot from any internal devices. If the investigator is unsure about whether he or she can enter BIOS setup without accidentally passing to the operating system boot process, she, he or she should disconnect internal drives before powering up the target system. Getting to the BIOS setup is accomplished in various ways, depending on the computer's manufacturer. From within the BIOS, the investigator collects and documents the following information. The basic setup of the system, including memory, CPU, and identifying data, such as the, evidence, or the, such as the service tag shown in the BIOS listings for Dell computers. Information about the drive type, the system's boot sequence, and the BIOS time and date. The best way to document this information is by photographing the various screens as they're displayed on the target system. Before leaving setup, the investigator must consider whether to change the boot sequence. If he or she plans to use the target computer for analysis, it's critical that the system be prevented from booting from storage devices that are to be analyzed. This might result in changes to data relevant to the investigation. The best approach is to use a system set up specifically for forensics analysis and not the target system. In the next installment of the series, I'll examine how to deal with a system BIOS setup protected by a password and how to prepare for the actual acquisition of data from the target system's drives. And the final feature topic is how to protect endpoint devices from swap and hibernation file data leaks. Many organizations are becoming very conscientious when it comes to protecting sensitive data. The release of Personally Identifiable Information, PII, Electronic Protected Health Information, EPHI, Intellectual Property, and Authentication Information, for example, passwords, can be very damaging. However, there are two areas on Windows and Linux workstations that can inadvertently bypass many security controls, swap and hibernation files. Swap areas on local disk are used by the operating system to expand the amount of memory available. This is done by swapping information from RAM to disk as processing requirements dictate. This means that anything in memory is subject to be written to the swap space. PII, EPHI, passwords, and encryption keys can sometimes find their way into an unencrypted swap file. This is good news for forensic investigators, but bad news for companies under attack. Access to a swap file can provide information not readily available through normal system access. 
Even information that isn't stored in local storage can find its way to the swap file prior to being written to a secure network location. A variety of common disk utilities can be used to access this information. Hibernation files are used by operating systems such as Microsoft Windows to write the contents of memory to disk when a workstation, particularly a laptop, goes to sleep or hibernation mode. Like swap files, hibernation files can contain a significant amount of sensitive information. Controlling swap and hibernation file contents is critical to protecting sensitive information. Here are some things to consider to prevent swap and hibernation data leakage. First, don't use swap files. If you have a system that processes sensitive information, consider installing enough RAM to make swapping information to disk unnecessary. This can be turned off in Windows XP and also within Linux. There are links to uh, sites that have directions on how to do this in the show notes. Next, you could turn off hibernation. I haven't found hibernation to be very useful, at least not useful enough to make up for the risk of compromising sensitive data. Again, there's a link for turning off hibernation in Windows XP in the show notes. Next, you can clear swap files after use. Swap data in a Windows XP environment is stored in pagefile.sys. This file can be cleared each time the system is powered down by setting a value in the register to 1. The value and the instructions on how to do it in a knowledge base article at Microsoft uh, are included in the show notes. Swap areas in a Linux environment are actual partitions. To turn off the swapping on a, in a Linux environment, you t- use the swap off command and then overwrite, random, overwrite the partition with random data. Again, the commands to do this are in the show notes. Finally, you can proactively manage the swap file. Utilities such as bcwipe provide functionality that protects data stored in swap files, including encryption. Regardless of how you decide to handle these vulnerable storage areas, be sure to include them in your endpoint security risk assessments. Well, that's it for this week. I hope I was able to help you make your network just a little bit safer. And until next time, be careful what you click.